This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. unique volunteer program that can alleviate stress for your clinical workforce today on HFMA's Voices in Healthcare Finance podcast. Happy New Year and welcome to the podcast. I'm Erica Grotto. Today I'm sharing an interview with Amy Levine, a clinical social worker turned consultant about specially trained volunteers in a palliative care setting. But first, I know Nick and Sean have a lot to share to start 2024. Beyond the News is next. This is Sean Stack, HFMA's Director of Perspectives and Analysis, and I'm excited to tell you about our new bi-monthly webinar series designed specifically for hospital executives. HFMA will provide timely updates on the latest national healthcare reimbursement and revenue cycle regulations, policies, and trends. This series will equip you with the knowledge and insights you need to navigate the complex world of your healthcare business office. You can register now at hfma.org under webinars. Hey, everybody. By the time you hear this, it will be 2024. So we wanted to take a look at some of the big healthcare policy and regulatory stories that we think are in store for the upcoming year. First of all, Sean, what do you think some possible developments related to the No Surprises Act will be in 2024? And just to note, about a day or so before recording this episode, we learned that the administrative fee for taking out-of-network payment disputes to arbitration under no surprises will be $115 per case. That's down from $150 in an earlier proposed rule. So that's a bit of a break, but it's still a hike from the $50 fee that's in place right now. And hopefully 2024 will bring much smoother sailing for everything involved with the arbitration portal, which has just been beset by delays and, and glitches. But there's a bigger picture with respect to no surprises that maybe will start to play out in 2024. What are you going to be looking at there? We are going to be following a lot of education and rolling out a lot of education around providers and guidance on the IDR process. You know, how to succinctly file IDRs, open negotiations with payers. I'm hoping to see some follow through by CMS holding all parties involved in the IDR process accountable to the actual process and to replying to the open negotiation and participating in the open negotiation process, as well as the IDR process. So lots to unpack there over the new year and lots of guidance and analysis to come out on that flow. I think hospitals are really trying to get wrap their heads around the new batching process that CMS has proposed and rolled out there. So really, as far as NSA, 
and the IDR process, which is holding all parties accountable, right, for the No Surprise Act provisions, I think we're going to see a lot unfold in 2024. I don't think we're going to see probably too much come out yet on the advanced DOB, as that format for that advanced DOB has not yet been settled, I don't think. Um, that blend of claims files versus eligibility files, what's the appropriate and the best format to move forward on that advanced DOB, but that's something that's definitely still hanging fire and watching, and we'll be watching very closely for No Surprise Act. Yeah, the technical infrastructure needed for providers to transmit their good faith estimates to insurers who then in turn deliver the explanation of benefits to patients in advance of a service is, is a heavy lift to say the least. And hopefully have to deliver it to the, the hospitals too. That's yet to be determined. And that's something we're pushing very hard. The current legislation doesn't require the payer to push that advanced DOB back to the provider, which we feel it really should, because the provider needs to know what they should be appropriately collecting from the patient. Great point. So yeah, there's a lot for regulators still to work through. Another thing pending this year is QR codes for health insurance. I'll just let you take this one because you've been closely involved with this initiative on behalf of HFMA. Yeah, so the standardization of the data that flows from that QR code, we should hear some finalization to the standardization on that, on those file formats, hopefully right, you know, in the first couple of months of 2024. And from there, you know, now that CMS is pretty involved in this process or somewhat involved in this process, we are looking for the potential for the major payers to begin including QR codes on their insurance cards and digital insurance cards to make the registration, the prior authorization, the notification process much easier and much more automated for providers. And of course, that's going to help greatly with the registration process, being able to scan a QR code and upload that hopefully directly to the EHR. So lots of capabilities there that will be built on in the near and far future with those QR codes. So that is definitely something that we think we're going to be watching very closely and we think we'll be rolling pretty quickly in the first quarter of 2024. So that's exciting for hospitals and for payers on that heavy administrative burden on the front end for registration and everything. Definitely exciting, maybe even, even game-changing. Certainly an eventful year is in store. We did not even touch on the fact that it's a presidential election year. Coming out of the holidays, we didn't want you all to have to hear about politics, but we will be talking about that quite a bit in the months ahead. So with that said, thanks, everyone. Looking forward to a great year for Beyond the News and Voices in Healthcare Finance. Thank you, Nick. When you hear the word doula, you probably think of someone who guides a person through childbirth. But for today's episode, I want you to consider a different use of the word. Amy Levine, a clinical social worker by background who now works as a consultant, uses the word doula to describe specially trained volunteers in a palliative care setting. Her first doula volunteer program was at Mount Sinai Health System in New York, where it's still going strong. I was delighted to talk with her recently about what such a program entails. For some people, they get very few visitors. Some people have no visitors. They think really... The heart of it is that a doula volunteer who's specially trained can come in and have a visit that is very patient-centered around what is it that they want to talk about. 
And, you know, the visits vary, but I think the idea is that somebody shows up when a lot of people are uncomfortable about being around somebody who's seriously ill so that they can really relieve some of that isolation. I think the other piece is that there's control. So one, they're not associated with the medical staff. So if somebody doesn't want to visit, just having the control, honestly, to be able to say, I don't think I want to visit today. Or to be able to say, spend the time both maybe talking about illness, but then also talking about baseball. And that takes a kind of skill to just be able to, to sit calmly and quietly. The other piece of it is all stages of illness. So at certain stages of illness, as we know, in stages of illness, people may not be able to speak, but still it's comforting to have somebody by their side. And it could be just five minutes. But it's the fact that a doula volunteer for inpatient have been trained. So I think the doing may look from the outside, what are they doing? And that's a big, big question, which are what do doulas do? So you may see somebody talking. You may see somebody just hanging out, reading together. You may be watching television. You may be sitting silently. You may be laughing even. But I think it's the impact of the doula volunteer. I mean, if any of us have imagined, I mean, there may be people out there who have been hospitalized. And my own relationship in that has been just having the person who comes in cheerfully with the meal tray and having a very, very normal kind of exchange and how beneficial that is to be able to be reconnected with one's identity in all ways other than being a sick person. You know, a doula volunteer can be listening to the really tough stuff that somebody might want to say. They're not there to fix it. They're not there to in any way there, but be, to be able to listen. I want to ask you about the issue of fixing it because I have to imagine people go in and they hear something, I'm in a lot of pain or something, they want to do something to fix it. How does training figure into to that? So certainly the first thing, which is if you come into a room and somebody, the first thing they say is I'm in a lot of pain, you go to the front desk and just say, I'm with so-and-so. And, you know, I mean, you ask permission. So that's a practical thing. But then it's to go back into the room and be with that person when they are struggling with pain. And so some of it is really understanding what's being whipped around inside of us, because that takes us away from being able to sit with someone and be present. How does the organization's culture and structure have to figure into the program when it's created? Well, I think the key thing here isn't bringing a program and making the hospital fit the program. I think that it's not a cookie cutter process. I mean, if you want an enduring program, a successful program, longevity, it's really to say, how does this hospital work? And how does this department work? And so first, it's really to begin understanding who is the best person on the palliative care team to take the lead on this. Um, the other is to understand what are the mandates Often the volunteer department is involved in terms of having a piece of the training for the volunteers. So there's the specialized training 
of the volunteers and the oversight, which really is housed in the palliative care team. What kind of benefits does a program like this have for the clinical staff? You know, we talk a lot at HFMA about workforce shortages and they're they're across the board, right? It's not just clinical folks, but I think that this program can really help with that. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Oddly, and not oddly, when I created the program for Mount Sinai, I actually created a survey for the staff. I really wanted to know. I mean, I was actually meeting regularly with the staff because the big piece about customizing a program is it has to work for everyone. It has to work in the flow. So one of the things that I observed and some of the feedback was always their relief when they saw that a doula was on the floor. In this case, it was a unit, but a relief that somebody was visiting somebody that they knew who really could benefit from talking. And so if we take a look at that, I think in terms of people's stress, in terms of the clinical staff's stress, it gets lowered because everyone's compassionate. Everybody wants to be able to spend the time, but they just can't. The other thing, and we didn't measure it, and it's really what I just think, is that when we all are feeling less anxious, and that was some of the feedback from the staff that they observed or felt that their patient was less anxious, you're probably most likely not in need as much in terms of reassurance from a clinical staff member. You've had somebody who talked to you, your stress level, meaning a patient um, is feeling less, you're feeling less anxious, you're feeling less worry because you were able to get it out. How else can we measure success in a program like this? Because, you know, at HFMA, when we're talking about measuring success, we're talking about cost savings and improved health outcomes, and neither of which really seem to apply a whole lot here. Uh, there are a few things. One, I would say that the volunteers continue to want to be there and, and see the patients. So you have the volunteer satisfaction. The hospital satisfaction is in the request for this to continue. So if I've created, again, I'm going back to Mount Sinai, really, but their program has been going strong for 10 years. Now, there's a reason for it. Um, it's meeting a need. It's not getting in the way. That was the other question. It's not getting in the way of the clinical staff's work or anybody else's work. So they're continuing to run the program. In terms of a consult service, when we've done consult services, it's the fact that the palliative care team continues to want to have doula volunteers. I mean, I think that the success is in the longevity of the relationship. This is such a fascinating topic. I would love to hear if anybody listening is inspired to start a doula volunteer program. Amy Levine, thank you so much for joining me today. And thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Voices in Healthcare Finance is a production of the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Additional reporting by Nick Hutt, Sean Stack, and the HFMA editorial team. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is the director of content. Our president and CEO is Ann Jordan. 
Sean's stack has been canceled. Thank you.